everyone, and welcome to Myth Matters, a bi-weekly podcast of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your host and personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. In the last podcast, I told you the beginning of the Arthurian legend of Percival and his quest for the Grail. This was written by the French poet Christian de Troyes in the 12th century. And this story, along with others about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, were part of a cultural conversation at that time. A conversation about the rights and authority of the individual and the tremendous power wielded by the Christian church and the hierarchy of church officials. The legitimacy of this whole structure was being called into question. And Percival's quest for the Grail is easily understood as a quest for self-realization undertaken by the individual, for the individual, as an assertion of the need felt by each and every one of us to know ourselves, be ourselves, and meet our destiny. Answering the call and taking up the quest for self-realization is often very difficult. We must step onto the pathless path, forge our own way, and approach the journey with a beginner's mind. This is the message that I take from the story and also from Joseph Campbell's commentary about it. And today, I want to tell you the last part of this story about Percival's fateful meeting with the Fisher King. Now, whether or not this is the end of this story is up for debate. There is general agreement that Cretan de Troyes didn't finish the story, although others subsequently supplied various endings. And this mystery of de Troyes' relationship to the story intrigues me. He seems to have just stopped and like mid-sentence. And maybe he didn't finish it because he died, but maybe there is another reason why he didn't know the end. I want to consider then, with the help of this last part of the story, the larger significance of the personal quest for self-realization. Is there importance or meaning for our community when we keep our date with destiny and undertake the quest? And if so, what is the nature of our contribution? So let's turn to the story. First, I want to give you a very brief recap from the last podcast. We have Percival. He is a very callow young man raised by his mother in a remote forest. He knows almost nothing of the world and recognized himself as darling young son because that is what his mother called him. One day, he's out hunting, 
and he sees a group of knights riding through the forest. They appear so beautiful and amazing and otherworldly to him that Percival thinks they must be angels. In other words, he is mesmerized, transported, transformed by the sight. This is something he will never forget. Destiny calls. Percival decides to leave Mom, find King Arthur, and be made a knight. After an eventful journey, he succeeds because a young woman mysteriously predicts that he might be the greatest knight who ever lived. Well, this seems highly unlikely, but King Arthur does make him a knight as a result. Now, if you want to hear the rest of the story in detail, you can find it in the archived podcast under the old name of Myth in the Mojave. Myth in the Mojave, which is what I used to call this podcast, is available on whatever platform you're using to listen to this right now. Or you can follow links from the Myth in the Mojave website to find those podcasts. In very, very brief, I will fill in a gap here. Percival leaves the court of King Arthur, and he has a series of adventures. He fights his first battle, defeats the Red Knight, gets a suit of armor, weapons, a horse. He meets his mentor, Lord Gornamont, and learns many of the technical skills of knighthood. He also receives some important advice about how to comport himself as a knight. In the first part of the story, Percival's mother gave him some advice. And as you might recall, he followed that advice to the letter in a way that was ridiculous and dangerous because he didn't really understand it. He didn't really understand the point. For example, his mom tells him, to only take a kiss from a lady. And she means don't assault women. But Percival interprets this as take a kiss and forces himself on the first defenseless woman that he meets. Lord Gornamont, Percival's mentor, also gives the young man some advice. He tells him the rules for fair fighting and engagement between knights and He also tells Percival, who tends to ask a lot of annoying and rather stupid questions, to refrain from this practice and learn how to silently observe and understand his situation before opening his mouth. Percival leaves Lord Gornamont after only a few days because he has achieved his goal, King Arthur proclaimed him a knight, And he's in a hurry to get back home to his mother. She seemed ill when he left, and he is concerned about her. But fate intervenes, Percival fights more knights, and then he meets his lady love, Blanche Fleur. He saves Blanche Fleur and her kingdom, and he learns a great deal about being a knight, about chivalry, and love. The young man is truly becoming an honorable and formidable knight. 
He's no longer a a naive kid waving a lance. He also has a future wife and home, but he leaves Blanche Floor also. He is compelled to get home to see his mother. The more he understands, the greater his sense of urgency. Now, this quest to self-realization, as described by the story, involves skill development, a maturation of personality and character, a journey in consciousness, and a union of what we call masculine and feminine in both psyche and outer world relationships. It also involves a return to mother, that is, to your point of origin, the source of life. And this is the place where we'll pick up the story. I invite you to relax and listen and note the details that catch your attention as they are your opening into the meaning this story holds for you right now. Percival's Meeting with the Fisher King When Percival left Blanche Fleur, he rode all day without meeting another soul. Along the way, he prayed to God that he was going to be allowed to see his mother alive and healthy again. Finally, he came to a river, a river that was running very deep and fast, and there was no question of fording it with his horse, So he walked up and down along the banks, trying to figure out what to do. There was no bridge. He looked out into the river, and he saw two men in a small boat. One of them was fishing, and seeing no other option, Percival called out to them, "'Friends, hey, if you please, is there a way across the river?' And the man who was fishing yelled back, No, there's no bridge and there's no ferry or large boat either. There is no way across for miles and miles. Well, Percival was tired and it was getting rather late in the day, so he yelled back to the man, Well, can you tell me where I might find lodging for the night? And the fisherman said, yes, well, if that's what you need, you can stay with me. Go back the way you came, and when you get to the crack between the rocks, pass through that into the valley, and there you will find my house. Percival thanked the man, and he went back the way that the fisherman had instructed him. He eventually found the crack. He went through, he went into the valley, but there was no sign of a house. And he rode and looked for a while, and he started to get really annoyed and to wonder if that guy had just been playing with him to make him miserable. And then suddenly, the clouds shifted, and there was a beautiful turret of gray and brown stone uh, showing between the trees. Ah, okay. Well, so there's actually a castle. Percival hurried down to the place, and when he got there, the drawbridge was down. 
So he conveniently rode right in and was immediately greeted and assisted by the pages who took his armor and led his horse off for water and for food. And Percival himself was taken into a great square hall in the center of this beautiful palace. There was a roaring fire in the chimney and a grizzled old knight, an old man dressed all in black, was laying back, kind of like leaning back on his arms on a bed in front of the fire. The servants led Percival over to this man, and when he got closer, Percival realized that it was the fisherman from the boat. Forgive me, said his host, for not rising to greet you, but I can't stand, so maybe you'll come and sit next to me. Percival sat down in the place indicated, and the man asked him, where did you come from today? Well, I came from the castle of Blanche Fleur, Percival said. And the man commented that it was quite a long journey and that Percival must have been riding for days. And Percival said, oh, no, it was uh, just this afternoon. I, I really didn't come all that far. And just then a servant came into the hall with a beautiful sword and a sword belt. He brought them to the man on the couch and said, This is a gift from your niece. She says that the maker of this sword is one of the finest craftsmen in the land, and he has only made three swords. This is one of them, and he's not going to make any more. It can only be broken under one condition, which only the sword maker knows. And she wants you to take this sword and give it to whomever you want. The man took the sword and weighed it in his hands and then offered it to Percival. Well, Percival took it and looked at it and it was extraordinary. It was very beautiful, made of gold and silver and inlaid with precious jewels And also, it was very strong and light. I think that sword was meant for you, my friend, said the man. Percival was amazed and honored and said, thank you very much. I'd be happy to accept it. And the page came and took the sword and some of Percival's other belongings and and, uh, took them away for safekeeping. And then a table was brought and laid with a white cloth and candles. And they started bringing food out for the evening meal there. All these preparations were being made, and the man and Percival were chatting about this and that. And then a strange thing happened. A door at the far end of the hall opened, and a servant came in carrying a white lance with a white spearhead. He walked very solemnly with his eyes straight ahead. And as he got closer to Percival and his host, 
Percival noticed that a drop of blood was slowly rolling down from the iron point all the way down the lance until it reached the servant's hand. Well, this was very strange. And Percival wondered, like, well, what what could possibly be the meaning of a lance that bleeds? He was very curious about this. But he knew he was in the presence of a wonder, and so he remembered Lord Gornemont's advice about asking too many questions, and he kept quiet. Well, the servant continued walking across the room in front of them, and then he went into a small door on the other end and disappeared. And then two other servants came in the room from the door at the opposite end, carrying two huge gold candle holders, and then behind them was a young woman carrying a chalice crusted with gemstones. She carried this beautiful grail very carefully in both hands, and as soon as she walked into the room, it seemed that the light was so bright from that grail dish that all of the candles in the room dimmed. And then behind her, there was another girl carrying a silver platter. And this procession made its way very soberly and quietly across the room, past where the two men were sitting, and each one of the servants with their objects disappeared into that room behind that same small door. And Percival watched all of this very closely, and he wondered about the nature of this procession. But he remembered what Gornemont said and remained quiet. Now the servants brought them water to wash their hands, and they cleaned up, and then they had their meal. And it was an incredible course after course after course of fine food and drink of a quality and a variety that Percival had never before experienced. And three times in the course of the meal, this same strange procession with the lance and the candles and the grail took place. And each time, Percival wondered about it, and he came so close to opening his mouth and asking his host, and every single time he managed to rein himself back in and pull himself back, and he didn't say a word. They decided that when he got up in the morning, he would, you know, he would ask the servants what they knew about this happening. And not long after that, uh, his host told him that he was tired. He said that he suffered a lot of pain and didn't have a lot of endurance, and so it was time for him to go to bed and asked the servants to create a comfortable bed for Percival there in the hall, which they did. They made him up a bed with fine linens and blankets, and he laid down, suddenly found himself very tired. But his last thought before he drifted off to sleep was that he was definitely going to ask a servant about 
all of these strange things in the morning. The sun was way up high in the sky when Percival woke up the next morning, and he called for the servants, but nobody came. In fact, the place seemed remarkably quiet. And finally, he got up somewhat annoyed and got dressed unassisted, and he went out, looked around, and he saw that his armor had been cleaned and oiled and left on the table for him, but he didn't see anyone. And he tried all of the doors to the other rooms, and everything was all locked. And so finally, thinking that this was the odd turn of events, he went outside, and and there he saw his horse waiting in the yard, all saddled up and waiting for him. So he called out a few more times, and nobody answered him. And so he finally went down and got on his horse and prepared to leave. And as he rode out of the gates, he thought, this is very, very strange, but maybe everybody went out hunting or they're out working in the fields and they just didn't disturb me for some reason. He rode past the castle walls slowly, thinking about this, and he was out on the drawbridge. It was down, and so he was free to leave. But then, as he and his horse got to the end of the drawbridge, suddenly he felt it start to go up, and he urged his horse on, and they quickly leapt over to the other side of the moat, and the drawbridge just kept on going up as if they hadn't even been there, hadn't even been on it, and Percival turned around angrily and called out to whoever must be putting the drawbridge up, like up there on the castle walls, and he didn't see anyone, and nobody answered him, and so at last he gave up and rode into the forest, where he found a fresh path of hoof prints. Percival followed these, thinking that they would probably be servants or somebody who is associated with the castle, someone who could explain to him what was going on and also what had happened the night before. And suddenly he came upon a young woman, weeping inconsolably, because in her lap she was cradling a dead knight whose head had been cut off. Oh, my God, she cried out. Why did you take my beloved from me and leave me behind? You should have killed me, too, because now I have nothing to live for. Percival rode up to her. Can I help you? he asked. Well, only if you can bring my beloved knight back to life, she said. I don't have any reason to live now. And then she looked at him puzzled and said, I have to ask you, where did you come from? There are no lodgings that are safe and clean for miles and miles and miles, but your horse looks well fed and you look well rested. Well, Percival said, there's, there's a castle 
just through the trees, and I had a very comfortable night there. You obviously don't know this country very well, or you haven't explored it very thoroughly. And the young woman shook her head and said, My Lord, uh, you were at the castle of the rich Fisher King. Well, I don't know if he was a king, said Percival, but he was very wise and very wealthy, and I did see him out in a boat fishing. Well, he's a king, said the young woman, and he goes fishing because he can't ride or go hunting. He really can't do much of anything because he was wounded in battle and badly maimed, and this wound doesn't heal and causes him a great deal of suffering. He goes fishing sometimes to relax. Well, then that was definitely him. I, that was my host, said Percival. Well, it was a very great honor to meet him and be in his castle, said the young woman. Very few people managed to find it. So tell me, did you, did you see the lance that bleeds? And Percival nodded. Well, yes, I did. Did you ask why it bleeds? She asked. No, said Percival. I didn't say a word. Well, did you see the grail? She asked. And the candle holders and the whole procession? Yes, said Percival. I did. Did you ask where they came from? No, no, I didn't, I didn't ask. Did you ask where they were going or what they were doing? No, said Percival, I told you, not a word escaped from my lips. Not a word. Well, these are very great mystery, said the young woman, very few find the castle, and even fewer glimpse the grail. And you did, and you didn't speak, and uh, this is really, really bad news. Tell me, what is your name? And somehow, Percival knew. And although he had never spoken it before, he said, I'm Percival of Wales. Now the young woman got very upset. Well, you know, might as well call yourself Percival the Unhappy, Percival the Unfortunate. You know, a question from you would have healed the king and his lands. You could have done a great deal of good, but now there is only going to be suffering. You caused your mother's death. She died of grief. And I know this because I'm your cousin and I was there. I saw her, and I saw her buried. Oh, no, Percival said. This is, this is terrible news. She was all that I was seeking. And now if she's dead, well, I might as well set off in a new direction. There's no point in going home. So why don't you come with me? It's not good to stay here with this corpse and... I will avenge his death. 
Oh, nothing could make me go with you, the young woman said. I'm not leaving my knight until he's properly buried, and I'm definitely not going any place with you. I think you, Percival, should take that paved road over there. That is the way that the haughty knight, the knight who killed my beloved, went. Not that I think that you should go after him or do anything for me, but I do hate him. And Percival realized that their conversation had come to an end, and so he turned and took the paved road. Why not go in pursuit of the haughty knight? He hadn't ridden long when he came across the tracks of a staggering pony. He sped up and caught up with this forlorn beast, this poor horse that was all skin and bones and almost dead and clinging precariously to its back was a young woman who looked equally beat up and weathered and her face was blotched and scarred from the wind and the sun and her clothing was in tatters. You could tell that she'd once been very beautiful but now her eyes and her hair were wild And when he approached her, he overheard her fervently praying to God to let her die. I have suffered so much, God, she said. Please free me from this life of shame. You know that I don't deserve it. When Percival rode up to her, she tried to cover herself. She was ashamed at how terrible she looked and how shredded her clothing was. And he just said, beautiful lady. Well, thank you, she said, even though I I know it's not true. Percival blushed. "I, I don't think I've ever met you before, he said. Oh, oh yes, you have, she said. I have fallen so low that nobody recognizes me anymore. But anyway, you need to leave before the haughty knight comes back, because if he finds you talking to me, he'll kill you. First, he'll tell you why I'm suffering like this, but then he'll cut off your head. She had just finished speaking when the knight emerged from the woods and saw the two of them talking. He galloped towards them, yelling, Now you've done it! Now you've done it! Talking to her! You can't get away. You can't get away from me. I'm going to kill you. But first, let me tell you why this girl lives in such shame. He pulled up his horse, a distance from Percival and this poor young woman, to tell the story. And it was a story about a young man who had stolen a ring and a kiss and some venison pie from this once lovely young lady, while she waited alone and unguarded for the arrival of her knight. Well, said this knight, she says that the fool took only a kiss in the ring. But I don't believe her. Everyone knows that no man only takes a kiss. And women, they only pretend to fight. So ever since that day, she has followed me and endured her punishment. 
She's had no new clothes. Her horse hasn't eaten, and that's how it's going to be until I find the man who did this, who dishonored me. Well, you can stop torturing her now, Percival said, because it was me. I stole the kiss and the ring and some venison pie, but that is actually all that I took. You admit it, said the haughty knight. Well, you're brave and you're stupid because now you're going to die. And the two knights began to fight. And of course, Percival prevailed. The haughty knight was forced to beg for mercy. Well, I'm going to show you the kind of mercy that you should have shown your lady, said Percival. Oh, no, but you don't understand, said the haughty knight. I, I love my lady. I'd like to make amends. So Percival relented, and he ordered the haughty knight to take the young woman to the nearest house, to bathe and rest, to dress her in nice clothes, to take care of her horse. And when she feels better and has regained her beauty, Percival said, I want you both to go to the court of King Arthur, and you admit all. And you tell the king that the knight in red sent you, and you place yourself in the hands of the king and his service. And this is what was done. The knight did, in fact, love his lady, and she recovered fairly quickly. And they went to the court of King Arthur. And when they arrived and told their story about their encounter with this knight in red armor, why, it was just the latest in a long string of stories that had come back to the king about the amazing exploits of this mysterious knight. King Arthur had no idea who he was, and he decided that it was finally time to meet this knight in red armor. He announced to the court that they were going in search of this mysterious knight. And I vow, said King Arthur, that I will not sleep indoors two nights in a row, until I have found him. So the next day, the entire court was packed up, even the queen and the ladies went, and off they went, and the following night they were camped in a meadow at the edge of the woods, and snow fell. As it was, Percival was not far away. He was up early in the morning, as always on the hunt for adventure. And he came to the meadow, in the king's camp. Everything was very still. It was so early, no one else was up yet. And he watched a flock of geese fly overhead, and he noticed a falcon swoop over the geese, dive down, and catch one of the birds in its talons. And then it let the bird fall. Percival went over to the place where the goose had fallen, and he saw three drops of bright red blood on the snow. And this combination of the red and the white made him think of the fair skin and the red lips of his lady, Blanche Fleur. Percival fell into a reverie, thinking of her and his mother, and he was so deep in thought that when King Arthur sent a knight out to question him, he didn't even see the man until he was right in front of him. King Arthur's knight took offense 
at Percival's lack of attention and tried to attack him. And Percival casually picked up his lance and dealt the man a serious blow. The knight rode off, bleeding back to King Arthur. The king now and all of the knights gathered round were very upset. What should they do? They argued, should they go and get this knight? Who was it? And of course they saw the red armor, so now they knew that they had the knight they were looking for. Things started to get very heated in the king's court until Sir Gawain, who was among the most honorable of all knights, suggested that maybe it was rude of them to interrupt the Red Knight, and perhaps a more diplomatic approach might work better. Sir Gawain went out to where Percival was still sitting, silent and withdrawn on his horse, and gently asked him if he'd like to come and join the court. Percival was shaken out of his reverie by the hospitality and agreed. As they rode back to the king's court, Gawain asked him, What is your name? And Percival said, I am Percival of Wales. Well, when they got back to uh, the court of King Arthur, everyone was astonished to meet this great hero about whom they'd heard so many stories and Having met the man in person now, King Arthur decided the least they could do was to have a big banquet. So they decided to have a big three-day party with games and food and feasting and dancing and all kinds of revelry to honor this great knight, Percival of Wales. They were all gathered together on the third morning when the festivities ground to a halt. Everybody was gathered in the great hall when suddenly the door was flung open and in rode a hideous, ugly, loathly lady on a scrawny mule. She was bandy-legged. She had eyes like a rat. She was hunchbacked. She had long yellow teeth. She was truly a loathly lady, and she rode right up to Percival. Greetings to you, King Arthur, and your court, she said, and especially to you, Percival of Wales. May curses fall on you and whoever greets you. It was too much trouble, I suppose, to ask a simple question or two about the presence of the Grail and the Fisher King. Why didn't you ask? Why does the lance bleed? Why didn't you ask, whom does the grail serve? You had your chance, and you didn't grasp it. And now there will be great suffering for many people for a long, long time because, Percival, of you. And then she turned and rode away. The hall was totally silent. Percival looked around at the party and suddenly he was full of shame. Slowly he stood up and said, I pledge to find the grail and I will not spend two nights in one place until I find it. 
I will test every strange thing until I write this terrible wrong that I have committed. And without another word, Percival mounted his horse and left the court of King Arthur to make his own path through the forest and complete his quest for the grail. Now, at the outset of this program, I said I wanted to look at the importance or meaning for the community of our individual quests for self-realization. Now, this story presents a number of possibilities, so what I'm going to share with you is certainly not the only way that you could answer this question. But I want to look at the connection between two mysterious figures, the Fisher King and the Loathly Lady. Both of these characters are motifs in Celtic mythology, which is the backdrop for the legends of King Arthur and his knights and the Grail Quest. The Loathly Lady you might recognize from uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and the story of the wife of Bath. In King Arthur's tales, she brings quests. Another example of this is the story of Sir Gawain and Lady Ragnell, which I shared uh, as part of the Myth in the Mojave podcast. The Loathly Lady is what's called a sovereignty goddess. A sovereignty goddess because she is connected to the proper authority of kings, that is, sovereigns, and to sovereignty as a right belonging to all beings. Sovereignty as the essential component of our human pact with each other, with other creatures and beings, and with the land, with our source. The loathly lady appears in stories as a hag, as a test. When the vow, when the pact that preserves sovereignty has been broken, and she shows up as this ugly woman who becomes beautiful when she is approached despite her ugliness. In the Celtic tradition, the goddesses and also the queens were warriors. That is, they were defenders and protectors of the land. And they were the ones who identified the men who had the right, that is the right character, as well as skills, to rule properly in order to be a recognized and authorized ruler of any community, you had to have the approval and perhaps even marry the queen or the goddess that presided over your land. The land, the goddess, and the female, these are all aspects of the source, of mother, of our point of origin. The loathly lady, then, is a signal that uh, this pact has been, that this vow has been broken, that the essential conditions for sovereignty don't exist. In other words, uh, authority is being inappropriately wielded by someone. 
And we know that this is happening because the Fisher King is in the story and because he is wounded. The health of the king is related to the health of the land. If the king can be wounded in a way that won't heal, that indicates to us that his authority is not genuine or is no longer genuine. And if he is wounded or ill, then his kingdom will also be wounded or ill. Now, I said that the pact has been broken, that the essential conditions for sovereignty aren't being met. What do I mean by that? Sovereign is the term that we use for kings, but sovereignty is agency. It's the right that every being has to chart its own course, to make decisions that are in its best interest. And the thing about sovereignty is that for it to be true, all must have it. Everyone, everything must have it. Otherwise, you have tyranny and the oppressed. So mutual respect between people, between people and other creatures, people and the land, between genders. And we can see that this is in short supply in this story. (laughs) The knights, despite their pledge and the acceptance of the chivalrous oath, are having a very hard time living it. Sovereignty is dependent on mutual respect. Mutual respect then creates the possibility for compassion, and compassion then the possibility for the recognition of the underlying unity of things. And this is, finally, self-realization, right? In the ultimate understanding of self, there is no other. And this takes us back to the image of the grail, of the vessel, which is both form and emptiness. Now, you may be thinking, what does this have to do with (laughs) a mere mortal like me, a regular person on the path? Well, we have a wounded king who is wielding improper or unearned authority, and he presides over a wasteland. A wasteland is a place or an era or an aspect of life that is barren, that is lacking in spiritual or other humanizing qualities. I think Joseph Campbell summarized it best when he said that the wasteland is a metaphor of inauthenticity. Inauthenticity. Not being who you are, not being responsible for who you are, and not claiming your own authority. And I think you see how this takes us back then to Percival. How Percival's real trials may in fact have been the advice that he accepts and implements without understanding in his coming to realize the implications of not owning who he is and the strength of his own authority. When it was time to ask questions, Percival didn't do it. It might have seemed reasonable, but it was time for him to use his own powers of discernment. It was time for him to trust his own understanding and nature. 
when Percival realizes his mistake, and he realizes that it has dire consequences for other people, he finally knows his own name. And this is when his real quest begins. Not the quest to become a knight, but the quest for the grail. And that's it for me. Catherine Savela and Myth Matters for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have comments or questions about today's program. I want to mention my patrons and my site on Patreon. If you're finding value in Myth Matters and you're willing and able to pledge some financial support to me, that would be fantastic. You can find Myth Matters on Patreon. The easiest way to do that is probably to go to the mythicmojo.com website where you will find a link on the Myth Matters page to take you to Patreon. I want to give a shout out to my new patron, Sabrina Fox. Thank you so much, Sabrina, for joining the Myth Matters community. Thank you to all of you who share this program and are spreading the word about Myth Matters. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.